Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Hello, folks. It's uh, 10.30 a.m. on the West Coast. It's 1.30 p.m. on the East Coast. That means it's time for Value After Hours. If you want to listen to it live, go to the YouTube channel, click the notification. It'll let you know. When we do it, if you want to hear it live, that we get a couple of hundred people in commenting. It's always a lot of fun. Uh, we get ten. more than that. Ten. 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 Ten okay. people with 20 proxies each. I'll tell you what, at 1030, this is going to seem a little aggressive, but feeling European over here, folks. <laughs> what, what do you got? It's, it's out of the picture. Got a little, yeah. got a little Chardonnay. <laughs> <laughs> it is after hours, I guess now. Indeed, indeed. Are you celebrating yeah. something? That's just the fact that it's Life the Tuesday. afternoon and I put in a nice morning, so I figured I'd have a little shard. That's great. What's up, guys? It's good. Everybody's... It's a bit of a, of a belated celebration of us continuing to uh, have a fan base, but I figured, you oh, know. Those are strong words, mate, fan base. It's yeah, just I was like going to say, that's People a... who slow down at a car accident aren't fans of the car accident. That's a true statement. Some are. Those are our real fans. All right, good to see everybody. And what what are we talking about today, fellas? What's what's your topic, Jake? I know that you have one. Yeah, uh, I'm giving a veggie session that's probably closer to like that Thanksgiving green bean casserole. That's hardly any really vegetables. <laughs> this will be a little more fun. But uh, we're gonna talk about investing lessons from Puggy Pearson. Ooh. Okay. What's your plan, Bill? I'm gonna talk a little bit of uh, aerospace uh, value chain again. Also, really like Jake's uh, appearance on the Investors Podcast. I like that Fairfax uh, Africa thing that you broke down. That was interesting. So, yeah, did you see the crazy maybe we volume can chat about day? that. Yeah, <laughs> did you move the markets? <laughs> no. Well, you know, it was, <laughs> normally it, it trades about you know two hundred dollars a day worth of volume. So, and there you go. Somebody Anything did due diligence been. and threw five hundred bucks in there. Yeah, exactly. Nice. Toby, what about you? Yeah, I'm going to talk about uh, value in an inflationary world. Uh, I think that's kind of like what we're what we're confronting here. Uh, it's just been a long time without much inflation, and I think where central banks everywhere are just swinging for the fences, like it doesn't matter. You just you, you can't. And I think that Powell even today he said something like, "You just about can't strike out. You can't do enough." So. That always makes me a little bit nervous. I think that the central bankers in the past might have something to say about you know doing a little bit too much. So we'll see. Nah, man, things are different these days. It is. We've solved that problem. We've reached a permanently I high plateau. Trigger warning on that one, Toby. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll tell you what. I think if the debate taught us anything, it's that we've achieved a higher level as humans. <laughs> yes. I I couldn't watch it. I just watched the responses. It was something. You want to start out, Toby? Yeah, I'll I'll take a shot at it. So, you know, we've had this we've had this massive crash. We've been we've been printing pretty hard globally. The central banks, Bank of Japan, uh, the uh, remind me of the Euro, the European Central Bank. 
ECB and the Fed and, you know, all the other little ones, the Aussie, Aussie, Australia has a central bank and they're out there doing their, their best as well. Um, so in some, we've printed this gigantic amount of money, like starting, starting a long, long time ago, but we really, really turned it up in about 2010 and uh, we've really taken the, uh, we've, we've set them to like 24 hour printing as of earlier this year. It seems to me that at some stage, if you print a whole lot of money, that turns up. Apparently, you're not allowed to say that inflation runs through asset prices, but I think that inflation's probably pretty clearly run through asset prices for the last decade or so. Uh, and I think that it's probably run through consumer prices as well, but I don't think that that's been really well picked up by the CPI, which is uh, always adjusted to reduce the amount of inflation that you see. And somehow, they get the benefit of uh, when you get a better television hedonically adjust the better TV, better computer, better car, so on. So I think uh, we're likely, we're probably likely to see uh, some inflation in the future, uh, and that might be a that might be a mild understatement to say that we're going to see some. We might see a lot. So what would a, what would a lot be, Toby, for you? Well, I mean, I don't, I, I, I think that we see something like a '70s style stagflation where. Um, you know, interest rates are pinned pretty close to zero at the moment. Um, so, and, and central banks can't do anything about... The reason that they're pinned at zero is that government's got way too much debt. The average consumer's got way too much debt. The average company's got way too much debt. If you stick up... If interest rates go up, none of us can afford it. So interest rates are going to be pinned at zero for a long time. So there's no way to deal with any inflation if we get any. And then on top of that, we're printing a whole lot of money. So... You know the impact. The, the 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 idea, I guess, was that you don't see the asset price inflation. So, we've had this collapse. We've papered over the top of it, and um, we've got no way to deal with it because interest rates are going to be pinned at zero. So, it just seems to me that the only place where that can blow out in that system is through a whole lot of inflation. So then, what do you do in an inflationary environment? This is kind of one of the really difficult uh, topics to deal with because in an inflationary environment. Uh, low asset-like businesses should do better. So Buffett talked about this quite a lot in his letters where he said you don't want a business that's got a lot of heavy assets in it that need to be maintained and grown. Like The only way that company can grow is by reinvesting in its assets and they, they do so at increasingly higher prices. So on an after-tax, after-inflation uh, basis, it becomes extremely hard to make any money in this market. So there's a theory going around, and I don't know if it's true or not, it's something that I would like to believe, but that inflation will help value stocks. Uh, something to do with the duration trade where that nearer term cash flows become more important than the cash flows that are further out. But then I've also got to bear in mind Buffett's thinking about low uh, you know, asset intensity businesses tending to do better, well, that can maintain pricing power. That's very important. So in that scenario... It sounds to me like Buffett would favor more of a fan mag type portfolio, you know, assuming that he could get the right price, rather than sort of a deeper value energy banks, uh, heavy industrials type portfolio. But then it sounds like I'm, that, that, that sounds more like a value portfolio. So I think it's an extremely difficult time to be investing in this market. It looks like you want to be in the asset light compounders, but then you've got to pay extremely high prices for the asset light compounders value, which has kind of been left behind. Looks pretty beaten up, uh, but then that might that might run really badly through a, a really high inflationary period, 
And but the only thing that I can think to sort of justify that that we're already at that point where perhaps the market has seen that coming, and so the market, with none of us sort of individually knowing uh, that it was going to come, has sort of adjusted itself so that these asset-like compounders are overvalued or, or, or are expensive because that's where the returns have been and they can deal with inflation and all the stuff that's going to struggle with inflation is already very cheap. So in short, I'm confused and I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you weren't confused, you, you wouldn't know what's going on. I agree. I mean, I think it's uh, it's incredibly difficult to to untangle all these different moving pieces because it seems like there's somewhere it seems like that would hurt, somewhere it would help. You don't know the magnitude of the impact. Um, yeah, I mean, you raise if rates go up at all, that seems like one of those you know good outcomes for a value basket potentially um, for all the same reasons that you said. Uh, but yeah, if it's if it's high capex, expensive capex, uh, you know, replacing capital to keep the cash flows coming, um, you know that those businesses do do relatively poorly. Now, I'm not so sure. Like now about this pricing power idea, I think there's more pricing power in the world when credit creation is on steroids, right? Because you're just like, well, I'm just going to borrow the money, right? But if you actually had to come up with the cash. You might be a little less willing to pay the vendor. You might drive a little harder bargain. Everyone's looking to chisel a little bit harder on everyone else, right? So maybe there's not as much pricing power out there as everyone assumes. Um, yeah, and if you haven't already, I would suggest reading. Uh, Buffett has an article, I believe, from Fortune that's called How Inflation Swindles the Equity Investor. And it's it's dense. It's a little tough to get through because it's... I don't know because he's so damn smart and but it is chock full of all it's a master class on how to think about this and i i try to read it like once every six months or so just to put it back into the memory banks and even still like that might not even be often enough so give that a a read can you give us a quick what's the what's the quick summary of the uh you would do that wouldn't you (laughs) (laughs) don't make us do the work uh he goes through how businesses are impacted basically like what we were talking about, like how, you know, depending on how much capital you need to add to the business to keep the future cash flows coming and how that changes, um, based on it and the different levers that a business has to pull, uh, to, to produce more. Um, so you're, I'd be doing a disservice to try to, uh, you know, this is like, hey, s- summarize the the Bible or something. Like, oh, okay, thanks. Give it a read. I have no idea on this stuff at all. <clears throat> so I have nothing to add in Charlie's words. The only thing that I was thinking about today is, like, I just think there's so much consumer surplus out there and that low rates lead to that kind of incentive. Like, it just uh, really enables people to... I mean, like Netflix is, uh, I guess you make it up in scale and I sort of get that, but like, what should that product really be priced at? Um, probably higher. And I just, uh, you know, I think when people can push out their time horizon that far and just say, well, the cash flow is on the back end, um, you know, lower discount rates seem to favor that kind of method of thinking. 
Would you pay 2x for Netflix right now? Well, now we're getting into a different issue, right? Well, that's pricing power, right? Would you, if today they said like uh, it's 30 bucks or whatever a month, would you keep it? Uh, well, I mean, I barely keep it where it is, but I guess that <laughs> what, I, what, so where's I all guess, this consumer surplus you're talking about? Well, I think, I guess that what it has done is it's created a lot of pressure on legacy bundle producers and they're like on a go forward basis. I think that ecosystem has got to unravel. So maybe it's one of these short the horses type things. Mm. Yeah, that that's where I'd get to. I, I think that, uh, you know, in that in that in that area, particularly in whatever that is, video on demand or s- streaming video on the internet, or whatever it's called, um, there are lots of options there, right? HBO, if you want the really high end stuff, uh, YouTube, if you want to just reach into the bargain bin. But there's some good stuff in there too, like this this podcast, obviously, is right up there <laughs> of the free stuff that you can get. You can get it without ads if you pay. Game of Thrones is, is uh, you know, it's us and Game of Thrones. For it's stuff. pretty much exactly what people flip between. <laughs> so, uh, but, uh, you know, I'd, I'd be, I think Netflix is going to be fine, but I always look at that, you know, that's a lot of debt and they've used all of that debt to go and buy inventory that ages like food, you know, it's just, if you watch any of those old shows, like they're just, I get there's some classics out there. You need to watch Cobra Kai. But that's manufactured nostalgia, right? Like that's for that's for dorks like that us who grew up watching nostalgia. that stuff. But it's manufactured in the sense that they've remade it for the for today. Like if it was real nostalgia, you'd be watching the original Karate Kid. Well, now I'm going to. <laughs> Which I then got to thinking, how long should I make my kids wait to watch Cobra Kai? Like you should not. <laughs> be able to watch Karate Kid and then just go into Cobra Kai. No, that's got to bake for like a decade probably. That's what I'm saying, right? Like, I mean, a while at least. I don't know. Maybe I'll just like mentally torture my children to accelerate the the feeling of the time. I'm not sure. I got to figure this one out. Yeah. But this, I admit on. that's not a fully baked thought. There's clearly, there's clearly some, uh, there's a lot of consumer surplus out there. A lot of it's driven, driven by our buddies on Sand Hill Road, funding stuff like Uber. Thanks so much for the cheap uh, taxi rides everywhere. That's been great. And, and lots of other, you know, coming. <laughs> yeah, I'll take more of those. Not that they're that much that useful to me at the moment, but, you know, assuming I ever leave the house again, that'd be, that'd be something that'd be useful. Did you guys ever have, um, what was it, Via out there? Where it was a it was boundary restricted, but it was a it was a service. It was a car service. It started in Manhattan, and you could get it from like the east side to the west side, and then they came to Chicago. That service, like it, the whole the whole thing was they wouldn't drive directly to your doorstep, right? So they would. Uh, That's called a bus. <laughs> no, no, no. It wasn't. It was a black Tahoe, oh, and okay. like you had to walk to the. It would only stay on the main roads. Well, like I got a ride in Chicago. It was probably, I don't know, like 16 blocks. And you had to say like, oh, I'll pick somebody up. But not enough people were in the service to ever pick anybody up. It was like a limo for 16 blocks for like three bucks. It was crazy. That's pretty good. I also have like absolutely no loyalty to either of those apps. Like you just give me the cheapest ride. It's that's a freaking right. car that's coming. That's like, right. Who cares? Let's get back to Netflix and its pricing power. Okay. Isn't that the I same mean, thing? Aren't we talking about the same thing? Like, if it's it, why, why do you have lo- like uh, what I do these days is I switch it off, well, but, and then the moment that a show so. comes out, I want to see, I turn it back on again. Yeah, I I agree, but like 
I guess that that's almost like my version of consumer surplus. Like you just have so much choice and the capital markets are funding it. And I think that the low rates enable people to look through something through such like a long duration lens that they almost, I, I don't, I don't know how to separate my feeling of like this price is irrational from also saying, well, you know, if you do get the scale of, you know, 3 billion users or whatever, it makes sense. I, I just don't know. Modest ambitions. Don't know how to separate those things. The, the totally well, addressable market is, is everybody who is alive. There's 7 billion people on the market. That's what we're no, going for. No, I know. For. It, was a, it was a big exaggeration. I know you were joking. I'm joking too. Hyperbolic, sir. <laughs> I have a little more wine. Thank you very much. But I don't know. Like that's, I think that 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 line of thinking is happening, until of course the stock price goes down, and then people worry about tomorrow and not twenty years from now. Well, that's it. Mm. It's easy to raise money now, and and there's this rush because whenever there's whenever there's a boom on, there's a rush to to, to cement your footing in the market, which is why the only search engine that can succeed is the first search engine out of the gate. The twentieth search engine out of the gate has no chance at all. No, no, no. That's Google. That's right. And they they had a different. Oh, wait a second. They had yeah, a different 17th, approach. I think. But the, there's Never this. Mind. The booms create the urgency, and in the urgency, they spray a whole lot of money around, and that has second order effects too. It makes advertising based companies look a whole lot better than they might otherwise be, and and lots of other ways that we can't measure. So I, I'm I'm. There is an enormous amount of consumer surplus, and that's very very good. Part of that's delivered by. You know the the internet. You get one homepage you got to look after for each little product, rather than servicing lots of different. You know you don't have to set up a physical location. Lots of reasons why it's a there's more surplus for everybody in the chain. But I like it doesn't eliminate competition. Anybody else can come along and and compete with you. I realise that there are some that have some genuine competitive advantages. But I just I just wonder if at some stage do we stop projecting these things off to these imaginary TAMs and just start looking at what they're earning now and say, well, you've got to, you've got to put up or shut up. And that kind of happens when the market goes down. Yeah, I was going to say when the stock stops going up. Also, at what point, like, how do you think that all of these grow and don't fight each other at some point? Like, they're well, they all will. just in their own little ecosystems making all the money? Or no, is, or is it going to leak into each other's comp in competition shows up? Well, this is the Greenblatt saying, right? Like some of these names are going to be the names that you know for a fact 10 years from now, but they're all priced as if they are, or many, I shouldn't say all. So, you know, you're going to read about the survivors and you're going to read about the managers that pick the great ones. And you're going to read about all this, you know, all the survivorship bias problems that are, are makeup books is what is going to be right. But let's just make sure that we remember all the people that get their faces crushed that's that's a lesson i learned after the after the you know the big short when when i yeah. first read that i was like look at these geniuses i'm out aware there. of the event the the, the book like the, look at these geniuses yeah, out yeah. there who figured out the fact that you know all of these things were happening you know of course house prices can't keep on going up there's all this leverage and then since then i've spoken to so many people who knew that it was just like common knowledge in the industry and lots of guys had set up funds beforehand that just, they just bled to death because they couldn't, you know, they get unlucky with the timing. And then the guy who gets that gets lucky with the timing and the idea, he becomes a household name. He's how, he, he's right once in a row. Everybody else is, you know, right no times in a row. Everybody, else, but you know, you watch the the guy who did really well. He hasn't been able to replicate that. Paulson hasn't been able to replicate it. You it's a tough to. game. You just got to be right once and be well, leveraged. That's true. That's true. 
Mm. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, it's fair. What should we do? Who wants? To, do you want to eat some veggies? Yeah. All right, let's do it. So, <clears throat> hat tip to my my boy Mike McCoy for I think originally introducing me to Puggy Pearson. So, here's this guy born 1929 in I think Eastern or Northern Tennessee, hard scrabble. Nine siblings. I mean, dirt poor. Gets a fifth grade education. Joins the Navy at 17. Comes back. And eventually turns into one of the most successful gamblers ever. And he, uh, his first big win in 1971, he won the World Series of Poker, the seven-card stud uh, event. 1973, he wins three World Series of Poker bracelets, including the, the main event, the, the Texas Hold'em, uh, No Limit. Also, not just a one-trick pony, though, top 10 pool player in the world. And also apparently took like $7,000 off a golf pro uh, on the course gambling, right? Like he's the original. I don't know if you guys ever watched any of those shows about the the, the guys who are like, you know, high limit gamblers and like the prop betting. I mean, they're yeah, they're just I mean, they're actually probably more like degenerate gamblers. Like they <laughs> bet on every single thing. Like they just hang out with their friends and be like, I'll bet you $10,000. The next car that drives by is is red. And they're like, all right, I'll take it. You know, like it's all day for them. Money just flowing back and forth but this guy uh he actually he painted on the side of his rv it, it said i'll play any man from any land he can name or sorry I, I will play any man from any land any game he can name for any amount i can count provided i like it <laughs> like, he's just gonna take action if he thinks he's so i have three quotes for you from him and we can sort of like you know work through these and and think about what the implications are for us who pretend like we're you know, doing something more important than gambling. Um, ain't only three things to gambling. Knowing the 60-40 end of a proposition, money management, and knowing yourself. There you go. So in that, we have like, you know, bet when the odds are in your favor. We have position sizing, maybe Kelly formula. And we have, you know, kind of investor psychology and, uh, you know, Graham's observation about being our own worst enemy. Uni All in one sentence from a guy who got a fifth grade education. Universal laws of gambling, speculating, and investing. I think that's fair, right? And, and they sound right to me. That's that 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 that's what you're trying to do as an investor, right? Yeah. You, you bet, want you, you know, want bet when you got the sixty forty. The better you want to get the right odds on the position that you're putting on. What's the next one? Uh, money management. Yeah, so position sizing. And then knowing yourself. Yeah, so that's that's the hardest part. <laughs> so the quote number two is even a little bit more elaboration on that last part. The first thing a gambler has to do is make friends with himself. A lot of people go through the world thinking they're somebody else. So, you know, in my mind, that's like, all right, just own up that you're either kind of growth versus value or absolute versus relative, which I think is ignored a lot um, in this. I don't know why, but absolute versus relative to me is even more ignored than most things. Um, Let's talk about that a little bit. What 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 is absolute versus relative? Uh, I think it's somebody who wants to actually make a positive return on their investment over a oh, long period of time. that's a little harsh, sir. That's a little <laughs> harsh. And the other one is more like, I want to beat the market. 
over whatever time period. I think that's harsh. I think I think tough. absolute. Yeah, I do. I think absolute saying I want you know ten percent three years out, no matter what, and then relative is saying, you know, if these assets, if these two two assets are trading at a certain price relative to each other, you know, they're in the same space, and this one's maybe a little bit growthier, but a little bit cheaper, so I'm going to buy this. I, th- that's how I I think of the two of them, and then I think you've got. Probably a blend is the answer where you have a sanity check where you're like, okay, maybe if I'm comping things at 50 or 60 times sales, it's got like a little bit out of control and I should not quite be on absolute. That said, if it's really small, I understand small and expensive if you really think it can grow. Does, doesn't Big abs- and expensive is a bad combo. Even an absolute investor has to be looking at the other opportunities right so your your opportunities might be you sit in cash until you find something that gets over your hurdle but you should be reducing your hurdle if the return that you're getting on your cash is lower shouldn't you or is that yeah, not what think. so the not way what buffett I think does ab- i don't think no the way i think about it is that the the first dollar in the portfolio is the easiest one to part with and the last dollar in the portfolio has the highest hurdle to me. And it, it's a sliding scale that moves from, from low to high. So Dude, it, I as you get out... First Army soldiers, <laughs> you're just sending them out there to die. Yeah, we're fine. We got that's more. What, that's what the pawns are for. That's right. Yeah. It's pawns versus protecting your, your queen later. Like you, gotta, you want your queen when the chips are really down. It's fair. I always find that relative absolute debate... I frankly don't fully understand it because I think that even absolute investors must be looking at there's an Yeah, I mean, so I was listening to the Seven Investing podcast that they were talking about I think it was chips. And the guy that was being interviewed, he said uh, you know, there's no more absolute valuation in this space. It's it's mostly relative. Uh and I think his point was like everything's expensive. Yeah. That was my sense from him, right? And and if you're going to continue to buy, what you're buying on now is more okay. I've accepted that that this space has re-rated up within that, like within me accepting that. Uh, I think that this is a good bet relative to the other bets that I could make. That's how I interpreted his statement. But he you also may be wrong. My you must be exposed. May be wrong. You must be exposed to that to those businesses. You have to have some exposure. I don't know, dude. I think some people just want to own stuff that's in like a secular growth type industry and it's easier to own and maybe it's easier good. to sell to clients and maybe don't give a shit because you can keep assets and you can or tell people you you're to, doing you something intelligent. You keep up with some benchmark in order yeah. to keep those assets and so you're more of a relative investor. Well, I'm just trying to, yeah, that's fair. Or I'm maybe just trying to work out. it. I mean, that's possible too, right? You don't have to. <laughs> yeah, but you could. <laughs> I mean that won't be true. I'm just trying to I'm just trying to understand the 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 basis for the rationale. That's what I'm trying to understand. Like, is it are you like, yeah, it's all expensive, but because we got to do it, this is the one I'm going to do because this is the least egregious or the high, you know, this is the best opportunity of the lot. Or is it somebody else who's like, all of that stuff is now really really expensive. I'll get it later when it comes back to earth if it's a bit cheaper, or not because I don't have to hold it. I mean, my personal opinion of what's going on, and I was happy to hear Mata's proposal say it as well. Uh, like, I think that people right now are willing to pay up for business certainty because it's either easier to stomach emotionally or it's easier to sell to their clients. 
And I think that it has created an opportunity set in the market that if you're willing to do the work and have the stomach to deal with some really shitty quotational indigestion in between, uh, you know, and if you can truly be long term three to four years, uh, I think that there's some interesting swing trade opportunities out there now, you know, swing trading. Yeah. Well, like an intermediate swing trade. I mean, that's basically what I'm going to talk about spirit. That's basically a swing trade. I mean, it's not an asset I want to own for 20 years. But guess what? Everybody talks about 20 years. Y'all are full of shit. Your investment horizon's like four to five years max or until March. I don't want to hear 20 years. That's fucking nonsense. <laughs> three, three to March five is 20, right. 20? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, mine's, mine's 20 years or until the shit hits the fan. Then I'm out. Okay. Thanks. Go back to Twitter. <laughs> All right. Quote number three. Wine. <laughs> <laughs> Bill's going to be in rare form in like 15 minutes. So let's... All right. Provoke him. I believe I in I just logic. Got provoked. <laughs> that does all really right. bother me, though. Like all these ROIC discussions, right? Like everybody's, oh, well, you know, you can pay a ton. Like just, you just have to extend your time horizon. Yeah, that's cute in theory, dumbass. Like I watch people capitulate. That's exactly what capitulation is. It's people no longer believing what it was easy to say when your duration was forever. So unless you're one of the people that was buying in March, I don't want to hear that shit out of you. It's my personal opinion. More wine. Oh, nice. That's fair. <laughs> All right. Back to back to Puggy. I believe in logics. Cut and dried. Two and two ain't nothing in this world but four. But them suckers always think it's something different. I play percentages in everything. There we Reach. go. A quant. <laughs> or a value go. Quant. Quant. Fifth grade education. Fundamental. Quant. Fundamentalist. Fundamentalist. Rather yeah. than a quant. I see somebody asking for life advice. You want life advice? Don't ask us for life advice. Next. Um, <laughs> the uh you know, the thing about the the um odds, and I had said it, I don't know if I had said it on the show or not, but like for so long, I think I like really fucked up how I looked at the world by I had this thing in my head like look down, not up. And I really the mental like the the thing that I should have told myself is think about the skew. It would have been a much more useful framework for my brain because I really I I had turned off the ability to see the odds because I would I, I didn't allow myself to get creative enough on the upside. It was a mistake. Do you think that's that the thought that, in every bull market? Though. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. I don't do, you, know. do you want to like? I think that you should be you should invert your thinking, right? You should be thinking about the risk at the very top of the market, and you should be thinking about the opportunity at the very bottom. So don't write the obituaries for value at the tail end of a bull market. Like wait until there's a collapse. Don't write you know your long uh, think piece about why value's busted in a market that's unfriendly to value. Like wait until, this is just my advice to all the young guys out there writing those think pieces after five years in the market. Have a look at what the opportunity looks like after you go through a full cycle. Then think about it in those terms. Dude, I was listening to our, I've been working on the store, folks. Check the store out. I'm kind of proud of how some of that turned out. Uh, But I was listening to some of our old episodes to come up with different sayings uh, and maybe like ideas for artwork, right? And uh, the you guys are talking, I think it was, I think it was like May 27th, maybe. I don't know. Maybe I'm off, whatever. Anyway, you were breaking down like how few of the opportunities there have been for value, right? As a factor 
in the past. And sometimes when you guys get into this factor conversation, I sort of like can't follow in real time or whatever. And I was thinking about it. I was like, man, that is crazy where we are in the, in how, how wide the spread between sort of quality or growth and like value is some of it makes sense. Some of it doesn't make any sense. When you say with the opportunities, you mean like when the, when the spread gets wide like this, what do you mean? Like the, the parts, the periods of time when value sort of uh, outperformed. Uh, no, I mean like when the spread is so wide, like you were citing, like you were down to like four other times that the spread had ever been as wide in the, in the conversation that we were having. It just sort of like going back among some of the conversations and listening. I was like, oh man, I know I talk to you every single week, but study. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a couple, right? There's the one like on the data that we have, you can run a back test back to like 1963 for point in time data. And you can see there's about four or five opportunities through that period. And they're all they're all legendary bull market peaks. Like they're they're cyclical Shillipee monster peaks. There's like two thousand and then you gotta go back to like sixty uh, there's one in sixty six. There might be one in between there that I'm I'm just forgetting about at the moment. But basically the the market it's it's hard i mean i i have a little bit of trouble believing it. i have a little bit of trouble sometimes like it sounds like such a dumb idea to go and buy something that's cheap on a ratio base like i get that it, it doesn't sound like something that makes sense it's so easy for everybody to do it but if you go back and look at it through history like it has worked really well on multiple occasions and the times when it didn't work really well looked like right now the spread was really, really wide and then it had a really good run on the other side. I'm not advocating, don't go and buy something on a price to book value basis. I'm not saying that. I, I realize that there's a big difference between the book value of a bank and a miner and a tech company. I'm not saying use price to book. It's probably a useless metric. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. But, you know, EV to cash flow with a little bit of growth in there. You tell me that if I buy something cheaply on an EV to cash flow basis, that's not going to work. Across, a, across enough opportunities? Come on. Uh, that's going to work. <laughs> well, and I think too... Um, Gauntlet thrown down. No, and I think that's probably true the bigger you get also, right? Because, I mean, now operating leverage can start to work against you and you get some innovators dilemma bullshit. Well, not bullshit, but stuff. Um, but like on on big bases of cash flow specifically, the multiple starts to matter much, much more than small bases, Because right? they're more, it's more harder to grow stable. and shrink. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So low priced big bases are probably a decent place to fish if you trust the capital allocation the only issue back to the, you, right? the only thing to say now though is that there's clearly more undervaluation in small caps than there is in large caps like if you run that if you run that uh the french data you can see it it's all concentrated in it's all concentrated in the little stuff small value is the big opportunity at the moment big value is a second opportunity and then I don't think there's much else out there. I mean, unless you're going out, so unless you're like EM or, or, or Have something. Have you not like seen Curate, bro? Come on. Well, that's Jeez. that's that's big value, mate. That's in my screen. Like I, I'm not I'm not I'm not anti Curate. I'm I'm pro Curate. I ain't I ain't like, get it. I'm for it. That big, right? That's more like mid cap. That's what true. is it? Two billion. That's true. How big is it? Uh, three point one now. Hollow. Yeah. That, uh-uh. I mean, that's yes. that's yeah. That's I don't think that. Not that I look. <laughs> That's somewhere between small and mid. It's not a. It's not a big. It's not a big. It's approximately big 3.3. Company. I saw somebody the other day saying that they were looking for uh, software as a service opportunities. They had a market cap below 100 billion. I was like, well, a <laughs> definition of like big and small has changed a lot recently. That's yeah, your well, asset inflation. Yeah. 
we found it. It's all in the multiple so, too. I mean, there's there's some. There's, I get that, that, that that's not true. It's not all in the multiple, but there's a a lot of the gain is in the multiple, and that can reverse. So be careful. Well, like Fastly, right? I think you're. I, I don't even know what the. I think maybe it's six hundred million in sales. I don't even know. It's like a nine billion dollar company. It's six hundred million might be way high. Don't even listen to me for this. The point is. I don't care if it's 600 million. I don't care if it's 150 million, whatever it is, you can grow a lot off that revenue base in theory uh, as a software company. So some of these like big, big multiples on really small bases, I sort of understand how people can get there. Big multiples on big bases make me much more uncomfortable. I've had a lot of people, Rick's has come into my feed from some of the people Rick, that I talked to. R-I-C-K. Yeah, yeah I think good, RC. Good slide on capital management. <laughs> yeah. yeah, then exactly. then somebody blew up. Uh, like I guess how many uh inner family uh lending? Like I guess he lent his girlfriend money out of the entity, and he's lent his brother out of the money out of the entity. Uh, one of my friends that likes it, he likes to. He pitched it to me. He said, you know, for the industry, the guy's good. And I was <laughs> like, yeah, I'm just saying that's a big big qualifier, man. Um. But I don't know. Bombshells, it's it's not what I thought it would be. It's a pretty interesting concept. It's a lot like Tilted Kilt if you're from Chicago. I could see why it could do well in Texas. It's like a like a new Hooters, but big. <laughs> and and everything is war themed. And you know war themed? Yeah, it's bombshells. Oh, I see. Okay. But it's not a strip club. Uh, I thought it was a strip club. It's not. It's actually like a I wouldn't call fam- it a family, family establishment, <laughs> but it's maybe somewhere that some people take their family. That must have been know. disappointing, but yeah, it wasn't the um, it wasn't the deep dive I was expecting. Do you do you want to do your bit? Is it is there more Puggy really Pearson? I don't care if people we're... want to hear it or not. <laughs> what? No, we we're good. We got enough out of Puggy. Sorry, Puggy. I was just I'm I'm back. I I don't know why I'm just like messing around with some of the the aerospace stuff again because I can't get it out of my head. <laughs> And I mean, I don't know if it's Spirit or Hexel. I don't know, you know, what the answer is. But I, Spirit Aerosystems, to me, is intriguing enough. I have like a small bet, but it's it's not like meaningful. It's mostly enough to get me interested. Um, but you know, I mean, that's an entity. I understand it's not the best business in the world. I understand maybe Hexel is a better business, according to my pea brain. Uh, the correlations 0.8, which means they're about 80% the same bet. So, uh, you know, it just, it's one of those that for the past five years has traded north of $7 billion and today is a $2 billion company and they appear to have the liquidity to get through this thing. Um, you know, I mean, that's what I'm talking about. Short term swing trades, right? I mean, we went from, this is a super cycle that will never end to travel is going to stop, you know, for a while. There are currently new york times articles about people that are flying to nowhere they are literally buying tickets in an airplane to get up to land in the same spot that they left because they were like the experience so much there's nothing like flying cattle class in a plane yeah i mean it's super bizarre but i think it's pretty hard to deny that i mean the fleets are going to be smaller no doubt but um there's going to be demand there and i mean europe is not very uh they don't love flights a whole lot. They don't love the pollution. There's a lot of pressure to upgrade the fleets. Ryanair is negotiating a big purchase of 737 Maxes. Like, this plane gets flying again. 
I can just see it being a you know eight years from now, people being like, "Wow, Spirit was a really good investment from that low base." Imagine that. And it's like, yeah, that's because that's how this shit works. I don't know what to tell you, folks. Right? It got blown up by the seven three seven max. Then you had the pandemic. They're able to implement some changes in their production lines that they otherwise couldn't because production has stopped. So maybe it comes out of this on the other side, just a little more efficient and more right-sized and super tight, you know, from an organizational structure. I don't know. Work for Domino's Pizza. Who's their end customer? You know what I mean? Like it's, these it's all the airlines stocks. Run. What? Spirits, spirits and customers are all the airlines run. Well, I mean, that's your end market, right? It's Spirit Aerosystems. SPR is the ticker. Uh, not Spirit. The airline okay. safe. Um, they make the fuselages and the wings and some nacelles for the airlines. But, it, I mean, it's you're ba- it's basically a derivative play on the max. So Well, it's certainly a bombed-out sector, so it's, and it's a bombed-out airline. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, that's the thing, right? Like, is it, it, you know, is it a mispriced security? Probably not. I mean, I don't know, you know, I don't know how mispriced it is necessarily. There's a huge dispersion of outcomes that's going to be an overhang on the multiple i i think what i can confidently say is in five years the uncertainty is going to be lower and the outlook is going to be better subject to another pandemic and if you don't think that that doesn't result in a higher cash flow and a higher multiple on that cash flow then you and i don't speak the same language makes sense to me probability of it losing money over the medium term is pretty low is it the best investment out there i don't know harder no, I was not all in on Bed Bath and Beyond. Get out of here, <laughs> fucking nonsense. All right, let's. McMur- well, I, should, I don't know that I should say that out loud. Let's Maybe let's uh, let's let's throw it. Let's McMurtry throw- did call it at the bottom. By the way, I don't know if he did it publicly, but he wrote me. He's like, Bed Bath and Beyond's going to rip from here, and he was right. So, credit where it's due. But I did not play that train long shot. Thank you very much. Yeah, we talked about it on the podcast. He was he was did buying we? a lot of bath bombs. No, no, no. McMurtry and I talked about it. He was buying a lot of bath bombs at the time to his bath. <laughs> just sitting there in, in a bubble bath up. every night. Has, with has a with bubble his bath. Chardonnay. Here you go, Dan. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I got to let's throw in some questions. I got a good uh, I got a good question here. Uh, what's your definition of value? I don't know, dude. Buying something for less than it's worth. Whatever it is, it's joined at the hip with growth. (laughs) I mean, look, what I like to buy is situations where I think that there is a lot of unwarranted pessimism in a stock that I can fathom a scenario where that pessimism disappears and people get it turned into optimism. That's what I like to buy. I tend not to buy stories that I think I have to be the most bullish guy in the room. I think that the probability of finding decent values in those stories is low and my personality is pretty freaking stodgy. So I'm not the guy that's going to be there, but you know, I mean, people that bought zoom or whatever in the beginning of this pandemic, like that was actually good value. I would have laughed at it at the time. It wasn't like, like they were right. I mean, the, the cash flow that it generated and the, um, I think that the opportunity set that that the pandemic opened people's minds up to, if you were early to see that, that that can be your definition of value. It's just not where I like to play. So hang on, Zoom was good value at the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah, I think in March, you could argue that. 
on, on my man Kevin's at Lugal. He he texted me and he was like, "Yo, they're I, I even put it on the Twitter machine that their distribution was like uh, Henry Schein. Like he was like they're in all the classrooms. Like they're you know they're gonna blow up. That kind of insight can be a value insight, right? You're buying something for less than you think it's worth over the long term. I, it's just not where I find what I play in. Agreed. I think there can be <clears throat> longer term based value and shorter term. And when, where, when is the value realized? Like sometimes it's, there's value today and purely just the assets that you're buying. And, you know, what is, can I get it for, can you get a bunch of shipping containers or something for, <laughs> for cheaper than, you know, what the market price of those is? Or it can be the business value growing into a re- what you think is a reasonable outcome and paying paying less for that and sort of skating to that puck. And I, I think either one of those is perfectly valid. I think they have their times where one does better than the other. Um, yeah. And that's a lot of that has to do with h- how much do people value the future versus the present as expressed by interest rates. Um, but, you know, it's not uh, one's not necessarily better or different than the other. They're just sort of different, uh, different flavors of the same idea. So like on Transdime, when I bought that, people were calling me asking me liquidity questions on an entity that didn't have a liquidity problem. I had a pretty high degree of confidence that that was value. I mean, given that and the price uh, action and what I knew about the entity and where it had traded and how it was trading and the questions I was getting, I was like, this feels like good value to me. Here? Maybe. I mean, I don't know. I'm not going to sell it, but... I, you know, I, it's not my game to be more optimistic about how we come out on the back end of this recovery. I just, it's not what I find interesting about investments or where I think I actually have an edge. I think I feel more comfortable in carnage. What's your t- definition, Toby? Yeah, it's pretty simple. It's always, uh, there's, there's two components to value. I wouldn't, you know, I get that they're joined at the hip, but there's, there's a, there's a yield and there's a, there's a growth element and they don't, you don't have to be positive in both of them you can be positive in one or the other to generate your return the the uh, to your point though being positive on the on the growth side of the equation has been a much better bet over the last 10 years and being positive on the yield side of the equation has been a losing bet that's gone backwards so i tend to be more conservative i tend to be more on the yield side but i don't think that you can ignore like I, you want the i I, it, I want the business to be growing roughly inflation or better because i think that 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 gets you out of a lot of the value trap type things that are just going backwards and and it's hard, you buy them at a discount and then you go to time re- is your friend a little bit more then you buy the you buy the ones that are going backwards and uh, they all, they're always cheap and they're always cheap all the way to zero and that's the that that's a disaster and I've I've played that game enough times in the past that I don't really want to play it anymore in, in the future what what I like now is just I want cash flow coming in some potential for reinvestment that will grow it a little bit faster than inflation and reasonable yield, maybe a yield in the near term that's sort of approaching the 10-year or something like that. And then that, like, that's a very, very simple valuation method. And that will tend to be cheap on an enterprise multiple acquirers, multiple basis because uh, they, they just tend to cluster down. I think if you pay more than 10 times on an enterprise multiple basis, you, you've got to have a really, really good view of how you're going to get that money back because historically that's been a bad bet. So that's that. I, I, you know, it's it's unsophisticated. It's a particularly unsophisticated method of investment, but it's it, it's simple for an idiot like me to understand it. And so that's sort of what I try to, 
I try to do. Like, if you're if you're talking about a reinvestment runway that requires very high returns on incremental capital for an extended period of time to justify the price that you're paying for it now, you you foresee it being so much bigger in the future. I have a lot of trouble getting comfortable with those types of valuations. I just there's something inside me that. Or maybe I've just seen them fall over enough times and not be realised. Maybe it's because I'm Australian and there just aren't that many of them in Australia. So that's that's sort of where I get to. I'm at yeah. the more conservative end, and it's been it's to, to my but detriment. I but I also don't think that you would sit there and say to somebody that's making that pitch to you and saying it's undervalued based on these assumptions. I think you might say to them, "I'm not comfortable making the same assumptions that you're making." But if your assumption set is correct, I agree that's value. That's true, right? I include so, that in my I mean, definition. The the, yeah. the things that I don't that I don't look at, you know, it's if it's if it's if it's purely a growth, if it's purely a revenue growth basis, and there's not much margin, and there's some of these around, and there's you know that I would have trouble with an Uber, for example. Like at some stage, that's got to get profitable to justify it, and maybe they can land and expand, and it becomes a monopoly, and then they can jam up their pricing. Like I can see, I can understand how that happens. How you value something like that? Impossible for me to know. Yeah, I think you got to build it up from the user base and then you got to think of the operating leverage. I mean, it requires a lot of exponential thought. And then you got regulation on top of that. Yeah. You have to I be mean, right about unit economics that are a decade from now. Right. And it's very, very difficult to, to, to know what unit economics are of supply and demand of something when there's so much that can change. Right. Yeah, which I guess is why I don't begrudge people that try to play that game. I just personally it's not the game you're gonna find me playing gotta know yourself the other thing that sucks about a lot of these that's right a lot of a lot of these like uh you know long duration names is then they end up like so you've got this company it's got like these high returns on capital or whatever and then it's buying back its shares at like a three percent free cash flow yield and it's like what the fuck are you doing like just dividend it back to people like like but then people like it because Buffett once upon a time said, I like to own more of Coke. Like, but that proved to be horrible. It, it, I, I just don't understand why people are so averse to the taxes that they favor buybacks at high multiples. doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And, and honestly, like if you're in one of these, like, you know, great companies or whatever, and they weren't buying back from, I don't know, let's not even ping them from March, like th- through April, like if they weren't ba- buying back in April and May, which they that's weren't. horseshit. And I got problems with Charlie. Well, they had liquidity that. problems. Some of them. is a big time momentum. It's buyer. always with it. He loves that stuff. If you're already six hundred. You can't feed him enough shares under you know four. Hmm. It's a liquidity issue for for, for some. Like the a, a t- this is the thing that that annoyed me so much through two thousand eight, two thousand nine. That there were companies that were very very cheap. That weren't buying back stock for the reason that they had no liquidity. So I, I, I try to remember that lesson this time around. Try to avoid those. That's things my that problem don't have with liquidity. debt. That's you. Right. The debt you're taking, you've already basically cashed that yeah. that chip in ahead of time, right? And so you've you've limited your optionality of survival. You got to keep the liquidity on your balance sheet. You got to manage that stuff. Yeah. Well, the it, problem with debt, at least from what I have seen. If you're if you are reasonably levered on a cash flow basis, that usually doesn't result in like catastrophic problems. I think when you start to get stretched on a cash flow basis and you start getting into loan to values, 
that's when you start to get into a game where like stuff can flip quick. Cause then if you're not, then if your bid gets soft, all of a sudden your LTV goes through the roof and you don't have the cash flows to support it. And then banks start to get really nervous. And like, that was a lot of the problem with the big housing crisis, right? Like it was not really income based. It was a whole bunch of value based and value was just as much as the next guy is going to pay. And that works until it doesn't, especially when it's levered so much. Not that Buffett is the only way of doing it, but I do like Buffett's approach to investing where he, you know, he says wonderful companies at fair prices, but what Buffett actually means is wonderful companies at wonderful prices. He's trying to pick the eyes out of the market and then he's waiting for the opportunity to bomb a whole lot of money into it. And so, you know, you see that with Apple. Yeah, Apple's a great company, but he didn't buy it until it got really, really cheap. And then he went bananas on it. And I think that that's, that's sort of, part of his uh, secret source has been that he is buying these companies that are much much better than they than they than everything else around in the in the cheap bucket but he's waiting until it gets in the cheap bucket that's a really hard thing to do i don't i don't know how to do it other than buying a lot of the stuff in the cheap bucket and hoping that some of it works out you also have to swing i mean i know i keep saying it but like absolute investor instead of a relative investor well i'm, I'm not criticizing either i've just I, I my question is about the definition a little bit like even the absolute investors are relative investors in my opinion because you what are you looking at are you looking at you're looking at the 10 year like you, you gotta you, you gotta you gotta put your money somewhere if it's sitting in cash then yeah, you got opportunity cost somewhere yeah, you've got the opportunity yeah. cost yeah that's sure. fair so one other way, like I think it's a perfectly valid thing to say, I'm only going to buy companies that have a sustainable return on invested capital higher than the S&P 500 average. And I'm going to pay a multiple that's a market multiple or better. And so therefore, you're buying better quality companies at below average prices, right? I'll you bet just you- described the magic formula. Well, well, it's 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 a little bit. It's not quite, but the, I, I think Close. that would be a perfectly valid. It's probably It probably falls out roughly the same way, but... It's a slightly different way of thinking about it. Or you can do the reverse. You say, I'm going to buy companies that are much, much cheaper than average, and I'm going to try and get them at a roughly the same quality as average. And I'll bet that works just as well. I think that all of those strategies work over time. Uh, you know, how they go in any 10-year period, I don't know. Bill, what would you think about, you You know, you said you're, you don't like to see like a high return on capital business that then does share buybacks. Well, like, at high prices, right? Yeah, yeah, at high prices. <laughs> Yeah. Like, why wouldn't I think I would be in favor of them plowing more money in, even if it lowers the return on capital down to something, I don't know, like 10 percent. But a bigger than absolute value of or bigger magnitude of cash flows because of that, even though the return like the, the return on incremental capital is falling, but down to some level rather than buying back expensive assets that they've already created which is one way of looking at, at a share buyback yeah that's i mean yeah on the and the, at the share buyback level you're not yeah you're buying it at a usually at a pretty high uh multiple to replacement cost i'd just rather have special dividends i mean if i had my druthers that's what they do they just give you the dividends not if it's a good management though don't you want them to hang on to it and they don't need for this, a lot of these companies don't need that much money i mean no i don't want it to be in some glass box that you're never going to see as a minority shareholder what's the tax Whoa, tr- are you talking about buffett right now <laughs> sometimes yeah and the, whoever think, said that they think i think i'm smarter than buffett i don't i just think a lot of the people that ask them questions are idiots that's the difference <laughs> 
I th- I think Buffett's core thing is think for yourself. And if you're not thinking for yourself, you're doing a disservice to what he teaches you. So if you're coming at me for thinking for myself, I'm gonna come at you for how you're thinking. And he's and he's got a bit of Chardonnay on board too. So that's right. <laughs> Finish this. <laughs> you off can catch now. those fists. Yeah, that's right. You're limiting yourself to one glass a day, mate. That is a that is a gigantic bucket. I could do a few laps in that one. <laughs> it's not that big. I got a question. Uh, do you think a two to three percent black swan option allocation is worth it at this point in the cycle? What's in that question? I don't know. I don't really know what it's priced at right now because it's it seems like uh, you'd probably be paying a pretty healthy premium for that insurance at the moment because it's Lots not exactly like the cat is in the bag still as far as it's a hard question shit shit could be a little wild here coming up who knows yeah that's a really hard question for that reason that i think that it's all expensive but you might get a payoff on it too so that's a funny thing that chris cole used to say to me is that uh the best opportunities in vol tend to happen when vol's a little bit elevated that's when you make a lot of the money Mm. because it it usually like march aside because that came off a very low vix uh that when the when the you know when the vol is elevated, that tends to be that's the back end of a crash. Like you're in the you're in the two thousand late two thousand and eight part of the crash rather than the you know, Q four two thousand seven when we probably still didn't even know that we were in in a crash at that point. And so vol was elevated, but then vol went really crazy. So we're probably you know, not that I'm not saying that now is equivalent to Q four two thousand and eight. You know, it's nothing like it at all. We're clearly at a new all time high. So I, that's very, very tough question uh, to answer there. Um, there's so much liquidity right now too, right? Like, I just don't know how you get like the really catastrophic downside with like without everything failing and then good luck collecting on your black swan bet. <laughs> like I, I then, then you got counterparty risk. Yeah. Probably not the, the two pennies that you're putting in the pot for that. Yeah. <laughs> if I, you're, I just, you I know. know, honestly, I'd rather just like buy some gold and, if that's really because I, I just don't see you winning unless the whole system collapses, and then I'd rather on gold. In your in your own personal safe, or would you, would you hold it in paper? Would you hold like a, a an ETF? GLD got to be you got to yeah you got to have the physical. But then, like I said, my Fizz. beef with that is whoever's like stronger than me ends up yeah. owning it. If you got the fizz, then you need the uh, the you guns. Need, you need to back it up. Yeah, that's it. You need that's right. <laughs> uh. Any more questions, folks? Looks like one of Monish's Ten Commandments is no shorting. I only listen to Biggie Smalls' Ten Commandments. Thank you very much. <laughs> Monish. No yeah, I, I believe in shorting. It's a real thing. You sh- it, it helps portfolios. <laughs> it's not Santa Claus. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we're running out here. Thanks, folks. We're gonna we're gonna call a little bit early today. That was fun. Have a good one. If I can figure out how to press the button. All right, guys. Ciao. Move with the rhythm. Shake it up. Stop when the clock gets 13. Sing one, two, three.